Many of you will recognize the name Martin Luther. He was the catalyst for the Protestant Reformation. He was born in 1483 in Germany at medieval times in an environment that was completely Roman Catholic. And he was on track to become a lawyer. That's what he was going to school for. And he was either going to or returning from school one day when he was caught in a thunderstorm and a bolt of lightning struck a tree just beside him. And I don't know if you've ever been very close to a real lightning strike, but it really, really gets your attention. And um, Luther fell to the ground and cried out to God to save him and made a vow. He promised that if he lived through this thing, that he was going to become a monk. And he lived, and he kept his vow. He gave up being a lawyer, and he joined uh, the monastery and eventually became a priest in the Roman Catholic Church. Now, it's a big deal when you become a priest in Roman Catholicism to celebrate your first Eucharist or your first Roman Catholic Mass. And Luther was doing that. Uh, His father had invited 20 of his friends to come and watch uh, Luther perform his first Mass. And in uh, that institution of the Eucharist in the Roman Catholic Church, they say these words, We offer to thee the living, the true, the eternal God. And Luther said that at that moment, he was struck dumb with terror. These are some quotes about what Luther said about this uh, later in his life. At these words, I was stupefied and terror-stricken. I thought to myself, with what tongue shall I address such majesty? Who am I that I should lift up my eyes or raise my hands to the divine majesty? The angels surround him. At his nod, the earth trembles. For I am dust and ashes and full of sin and I am speaking to the eternal and true God. So a lot of history has gone by. Many people are familiar with these words of Luther. He actually would have run away from the altar if he didn't have helpers there who basically restrained him and said you've got to finish this thing. And so the the question before us and historians is was Luther, a neurotic, unbalanced person who, who wasn't seeing the world or God correctly? Or was Luther, as I'm going to assert, on his way, on a pathway, by seeing the holiness of God and his own sin, to a life of peace and joy and fruitfulness in Christ? And we're preaching through the book of 1 John And we are seeking to know the Lord, Father, Son, Holy Spirit, better in our whole persons. Not just in propositions in our head, but in our emotions, in our wills and hearts. That translates into how we carry ourselves bodily and how we relate to both God and to other people. So we we really want to be different. We want to know Christ. And this idea of the holiness of God and our own sinfulness and finiteness really fits right in the middle of this. And so if you have your worship guide, you can look on page 12. We're going to look today at 1 John chapter 1, 
Beginning with verse 7, we're actually going to focus on uh, verse 8 and following, but 7 for context, over to 2-2. So 1 John 1-7 through 2-2. But if we walk in the light as he is in the light, we have fellowship with one another, and the blood of Jesus, his Son, purifies us from all sin. If we claim to be without sin, we deceive ourselves and the truth is not in us. If we confess our sins, he is faithful and just and will forgive us our sins and purify us from all unrighteousness. If we claim we have not sinned, we make him out to be a liar and his word has no place in our lives. My dear children, I write this to you so that you will not sin. But if anybody does sin, we have one who speaks to the Father in our defense, Jesus Christ, the righteous one. He is the atoning sacrifice for our sins, and not only for ours, but also for the sins of the whole world. So today we want to see that that knowing God means seeing the depth of our sin and the sufficiency of Jesus' atonement. Seeing the depth of our our sin and the sufficiency of Jesus' atonement. Or to phrase it another way, to say our sin runs very deep, but the atonement is fully complete. And so let's, let's look at this text and see what it says about us in terms of our sin. If you look at verse 8, it says, if we claim to be without sin, and I call your attention to the fact that this is a present tense verb. He's speaking to believers. He's speaking to believers in the church. And he says, if you claim presently to be without sin, you deceive yourself. We deceive ourselves. We're self-deceived. And the truth The truth of Christ is not in us. So John never says anything wishy-washy. He's he's either you're in or you're out. And that's what he says. And then in verse 10, he says, If we claim we have not sinned, and the tense of this verb is a past completed action that has present consequences. So now he's saying, if you claim that in the past you haven't sinned and wreck some things that, that have an effect on your life and the lives of others right now, You also are a liar, and his word has no place in our lives. This is strong talk, and we simply want to say in in regard to this that we need to be open to the fact of saying even believers who have been justified from their sins, they've been adopted, they have the Holy Spirit, they're new creations, they still have indwelling sin while we live in this body. And we could go through a lot of texts to demonstrate that, but I think this text itself is, is very, very clear. So what kind of impact should this have on you? How, how should you be, be thinking about this? And how does this make us sort of like Luther? And I could think of a lot of illustrations, but I'll just give you my own testimony, and I don't mind you knowing that, that I'm a sinner. Uh, probably 10 or 11 years ago when I was in Africa... We had several families there, that husband, wife, children, another husband, wife, no children. Uh, And they ended up coming to me in times of crisis or other times for medical advice and for for medical care. And uh, I laid out some parameters for one family. And then I found that um, the wife, uh, the mother in one of these families was shopping that information back to the United States with other pediatricians and coming to like debate with me about some of the plans of action. 
So I said, you know, we really are going to have to have a little bit of healthy conflict about this. And, and basically I sat down and said, um, either, either I'm the doctor on the scene or, the, or you're going to consult with a pediatrician in the United States because I'm not going to basically clean up somebody else's mess. If we're going to, you have to decide, we're going to do it my way or we're going to do it somebody else's way. So, you know, that's not an easy conversation to have, but um, we were all sitting there together, and uh, the husband, who's about 6'2", and weighed about 240 pounds and everything, he and I got along like a charm. Uh, the wife complained to her husband. She said, Chuck talks to me like I'm stupid. And uh, he turned to her and said, Honey, uh, that's okay, because Chuck talks to everybody like they're stupid. <laughs> And you know, I'm a thick-skinned guy, I believe the gospel, I could take it, but I, I really did, I took it seriously. I, I, I stopped and I thought, and th these are the kinds of things I thought to myself. I said, genuinely, in my heart, I don't feel condescending towards her or any of these other people. I don't really, I, I think in my heart, I, I don't need to repent of a sense of superiority over folks. People just aren't used to plain, direct speech. And uh, this is a situation where I'm not going to back down from the principles involved because one of these kids is going to get malaria and be near the doorstep of death. And, and we have to have some clear, clear lines on this. So that was 11 or 12 years ago. And so I've gone on these past 11 or 12 years uh, saying to myself, Lots of people just can't handle direct speech. And, uh, you know, I'm not feeling superior to anybody else. Well, I happen to be working on this message uh, this week. And um, so I was reading uh, an illustration by another person who's just making a mundane illustration about how when you are irritable and impatient with your family members or, or, or other people that might be close to you, like they're doing a task and you're saying, hurry, 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 why can't you do this? Why haven't you finished this? Why do I have to help you do this? Just impatience and irritability like that. That there is a deep, deep root of pride underneath that that says, I'm much better than you and I could have done this quickly. What's wrong with you? And all of a sudden, it was just like somebody stuck a spear right into here. Do you know what this conviction is like? It just, it pierces you that in this relationship, what this guy was saying 11 years ago, that I've thought a lot about and wasn't convicted about it. In this particular relationship, I, I have acted condescending and haughty and like I'm, I'm smarter than other people. And it really brought me, like, to tears, and still does, you know. You look back on this, and you say, man, this is, this is not good. This is ugly. Uh, I, I'm embarrassed by this. Now, why would I go to the length to tell you that whole story? Because if I claim to be without sin, I lie, and the truth is not in me. And so, God in his mercy, can just lift up the curtain just a little bit and shine his light in almost any area of your life where your conscience is completely clear and show you that there's, there's dirt in there. There's darkness in there. And so just because, and this is the takeaway that I want you to take from this, just because your conscience is clear in an area 
does not mean that you don't have sin in that area. Now, you see, you get into a little theological discussion here. Some people want to make sin just volitional things, like I think about it, it's clear, it's wrong, and I'm going to do it. And I'm saying, no, that's not consistent with the Bible. This is why the psalmist says, search me, Psalm 139, search me, O Lord, and know my heart. Show me if there's any offensive way in me. So it's not, it's not just volitional things. So let's just take an example for you. Some of you can't enter into this example, but some of us can. You're sitting there in your 2003 Toyota Corolla. It's got, you know, 300,000 miles on it. Runs great. You've been changing the oil. There's nothing wrong with your Toyota Corolla. It gets you from point A to point B just fine. But the... the uh, handsome and pretty people in the Porsche Carrera pull up beside you and you're just kind of gazing over there and you're going man that would be really super nice to ride around in that Porsche Carrera for a little while it just it was there you didn't have a chance to think about it okay I'm going to covet this person's car now and not be content and thankful for my Toyota Corolla it's just there now, you can, get, you can decide at that point that you're going to indulge that sin, but it's bubbling up out of your heart. And that's what Jesus says in Mark 7. It's from out of your heart. Bubbling up all the time is, is murder, adultery, theft, uh, evil thoughts, all kinds of things. Now, is that supposed to bring you to a place of crushing despair and navel-gazing and introspection? No. You can just say, search me, O Lord. Do for me what you did for Chuck. If you want to take an area of my life and show me the darkness there, I'm, I'm glad to hear about it because I want to know you. I want to grow. I want to be free. And we have to take in this text the prospect of self-lying and self-deceit seriously. Do you, you get the language of Hebrews that, that's, that you can be hardened by the deceitfulness of sin. Sin is deceitful. And that's what this says. It says you can lie to yourself and, and seem to have a clear conscience and talk yourself out of conviction. That self-deception is, is a real live possibility in this text. And we would just highlight here especially when the temperature goes up, when you're in conflict, and in the heat of conflict, that's probably the most important time to think about this, is it not? Because if we're starting to amp up to have some conflict about something, the whole point is I'm right and you're wrong and you need to be straightened out. And even on, on doctrinal and religious matters, it gets more and more intense. And so there, there should be a reflex in all of us that says, I'm going to stand down. Let me stand down. I'm going to listen to you very carefully, and I'm going to go away and pray, and I'm going to wait and think. And then we'll engage in this conversation later after I've had a chance to see if I'm self-deceived, if I'm lying to myself. 
Because how we handle some doctrinal issue isn't, isn't the issue so much as how we do it. Are we going to sin in the process of standing up for what's right? Dallas Willard has said over and over again, it's a terrible burden to be right. Are you with me on that? Is that true for politics too? Okay. There's a consequence of this that's very important in our denomination right now and in theology in general, and and that is this. And I want you to listen to me very carefully for your sake and for the sake of ministering to others. Just because a desire or movement of my heart towards sin has been with me from my earliest memories, or just because my sins are stubborn and not amenable to change, does not make them any less sinful. And what, I, what I'm really pointing to here, and for those of you who are here today, if you struggle with same-sex attractions or you have gender identity problems, I'm not trying to knock you or whatnot, but what I'm trying to do is give you a pathway to know Jesus. That if you say to yourself, well, this can't be bad, this can't be wrong, because I remember thinking or feeling this way when I was four years old. You've cut yourself off from the gospel. And you don't want to do that. And you don't want to let your friends and neighbors and and, and your teenage associates or anybody else do that. And so what, what is my response to that? My response to that is, look, I know that this is a burden to you and it seems like a struggle, But listen, you and I are in the same camp because when I was three years old, I pushed my brother down and wrenched a toy away from him. I've been a thief and a coveter from my earliest memories. So will you join us, the club of all the sinners who are in need of a real Savior? Now, some of my friends have have cautioned me about saying this, um, so it needs some qualification, but today I'm not going to qualify it. Your case is not a special case. You're in the exact same boat that I'm in. Now, there's a report out there from the PCA General Assembly that was voted. If you you hear all kinds of Internet stuff and things about our denomination and sexuality, and are we slipping, and all those kinds of things. There's a report out there that was approved overwhelmingly at the General Assembly called the Report on Human Sexuality. I encourage you, if you're struggling with those issues or you want clarity, to get that report and read it because it goes through. Presbyterians don't do anything brief. It's a fairly long report, and it has it it turns over all the stones and looks under those to to, um, help you. One other consequence of seeing the depth of our sin in these verses is this, is that it should result in a hatred of sin. So, for me, you know, there's, there's a certain embarrassment, or I wouldn't say embarrassment, shame, sorrow, over relating to somebody habitually over years in a way that's, that's wrong. And it it drives you to say, Lord, change me, cleanse me by your Holy Spirit. So there's nothing nothing about anything that we're going to say today that doesn't move you to where John is. My dear children, I write these things to you so that you will not sin. And you can have a healthy, holy grief over your sins, 
over your relational sins, over your non-volitional sins. So, uh, you came today to get you know, pumped up and everything, and it seems pretty, pretty negative. But see, this leads us, when, when you have a deep view of sin, it leads you to a robust view of the atonement. And that's really what we want to talk about next, is that the atonement provided by Christ is fully complete and satisfying. It's sufficient for sinners to be reconciled. Look at at this text. He says in verse 9, If we confess our sins, He is faithful and just and will forgive us our sins and purify us from all unrighteousness. I just call your attention to this. In other translations, the He is faithful and just and the He could be the Father or the Son or both together as as one God in three persons. Um, he is faithful and righteous. That word just has the root word righteous in it. Some, te- some translations say faithful and righteous. And he'll forgive us from all our unrighteousness. That God is just and righteous and faithful to his character. And he'll forgive us for our unrighteousness. Well, how can he do that? How can he be just and righteous and forgive sinners who are guilty of capital crimes? Well, he says it right here in the ta- text. He says, We have one who speaks to the Father in our defense. Jesus Christ, the righteous one. So you have this righteousness, or righteous, three times in this text, which almost exactly mirrors Romans 3. If you think John and Paul are are different, they're the same. That God demonstrates his justice. So how, how is God just and the one who justifies those who confess their sins? Because he, the righteous one, is the atoning sacrifice for our sins. What does that mean? You, you may know the old word for this is propitiation, and I avoid it because we don't really use it that much in, in, in general conversation. It really means an atoning sacrifice. That God's just demand for me relating to somebody in a condescending way, it's a capital crime against God, the penalty is death, and the only solution is the death of a substitute. And God has said clearly, there's no remission of sins. There's no forgiveness of sins without the shedding of blood. And he said about those animal sacrifices that the life is in the blood. So the wages of sin is death. And so the righteous one, Jesus Christ, the spotless lamb, had to die in the place instead of sinners guilty of capital crimes like you and me so that God's righteousness could be fully satisfied. And now that righteous one, in covenant with the Son, can really forgive real sinners and count them really righteous before his face. And it says here that Jesus now ascended with wounds is seated at the right hand of the Father. And his wounds are always speaking to the Father in defense of sinners. And it doesn't mean that your salvation is not once for all finished, and we'll get to that, but it means that he ever lives to intercede for us. You shouldn't think at all that the the son has to pacify an angry father. You should say they jointly together have covenanted in purpose the father's plan, the son's execution, to really save and forgive sinners. And it's very important to say that this atoning sacrifice not only washes away sin by the blood of Jesus, but it also turns away forever the wrath of God. 
Old translators in the 1950s tried to get rid of this, and they substituted the word expiation in here. But it's propitiation. It's a turning away of wrath that's permanent and forever for the people of God. This week, I read again about Patricia Hurst. Some of you will know that name. The younger of you won't. Patricia Hurst is 68 years old. And she lives now in Charleston, but she grew up in California. And she was the granddaughter of William Randolph Hearst, a big media newspaper um, mogul. Uh, his son was her father, and they had lots of money. And in 1974, when she was 19 years old, Patricia Hearst was kidnapped uh, from Cal Berkeley and held by a revolutionary group called the SLA. I won't tell you the whole name, but the, the SLA was holding her, and they were planning to use her as leverage to get two of their people out of prison. When that failed, they demanded a ransom from her rich father that he was going to give $70 worth of food to every hungry person in California. Now, she was badly mistreated in the, in the first weeks and months that she was captured. And I won't go into the details of that, but, but she was very, very badly treated and abused. Uh, Mr. Hurst actually spent $2 million. He gave a ransom of $2 million to feed a whole bunch of people in the Bay Area around San Francisco Bay. And that effort actually ended up turning into some kind of chaos but the result of him paying that ransom to redeem her life out of captivity was nothing. Because either the SLA captors rejected that ransom or she herself, Patricia Hirsch, rejected it because she made statements that she was actually joining the SLA and there were, there were videos of her robbing banks with them, and ultimately she was charged and sent to prison for a period of time for joining them. But we're not, it resulted in a 50-year discussion about whether she was culpable for, for those acts or not. But my point in telling you that story is that a person can pay a ransom that does not secure the freedom of the captive. You with me? That's historically true in this situation. And some people believe that Jesus made atonement for all the sins of all the people in the world, but that that atonement can be thwarted and rejected by their refusal. Just like Patricia Hearst. Let's say that she refused to be released. And what we want to assert today and what I want to get you to think about is that when this says... He's the atoning sacrifice for our sins, and not only for ours, but also for the sins of the whole world. That what John is talking about there is that Jesus has purchased people from every tribe and language and nation and tongue, and not that he was actually bearing the particular sins of every particular person that ever lived. And why is this important? Why would I dive down into this? Because what you want to see in the atonement is that Jesus has really borne the sins of those people whose names were written in the book of life before the foundation of the world. 
That the Bible says that, that God chose you before the world was created, if you're a believer, to be holy and blameless in his sight. In love, he predestined you to be adopted as his son. And this is the point I'm getting, is that the redemption that Christ purchased, the work he does at the cross by pouring out his blood, is irrevocable. It's sure for eternity. Now, why would I say this? Well, let's just think about it. This is very much parallel. This statement in 1 John is parallel to this statement by Jesus in John 10. I lay down my life for the sheep. He's laying down his life for his sheep. I have sheep also that are not of this pen. You see, that's the same thing. John's saying the atonement's not just for those of us who know right now. The atonement's for people that he's purchased by his blood from every tribe and language and nation and tongue. The gospel's going to go to the ends of the earth. This is why John recounts Jesus saying this, no one can come to me unless the Father draws him. Do You see, those whose names are written in the book of life, their particular, that particular person, you if you believe, your particular person and your particular sins, all of them in full, in total, were placed on Christ and there was a real effective sacrifice and atonement for those detailed sins. And then the Father executes in time what he had planned from the foundation of the earth by sending the Holy Spirit to give you a new heart and new faith and repentance. And so that redemption is unshakable. It's irrevocable. Christ's work as strong Savior cannot be thwarted. And so we spent a long time on this and, and we're sort of hammering it down. And I just want you to think about this. There's somebody right now, you pick your country, in India, in South Sudan, who's growing up, he, he was just born today, in an utterly pagan environment. But his name was written in the Lamb's Book of Life from before the foundation of the world. You read that through Revelation, it's all through there. And God is going to find him by his Holy Spirit with all of his sins. He may have notorious sins. And he's going to give him a new heart and a new mind to confess Christ and to confess his sins and receive this atonement that has been procured by Christ. And this is why we go preach the gospel with, with confidence. Now, if you're here today and you don't believe, you might be thinking to yourself, well, how will I know if I'm one of those whose name is written in, in the Lamb's Book of Life? Well, you want to hear Jesus again. When he says that, that all the Father who gives me will come to me, and I will never cast them out. So if you're hemming and hammering, there's no such thing. It's, it's a false thought experience that somebody's going to come to Jesus and say, I want to trust you. And him say, well, your name's not in the Lamb's Book of Life. It's a, it's a non-thing. It's a not thing. It's not going to happen. So you come, and you hear Jesus say, I will never cast you out. You believe, you repent, and be saved. And then you be confident as you walk in faith and repentance that this atonement is for you. Well, what are some of the consequences of this atoning work of Christ that we want to, to bear down on? Well, one is that it enables you to have honest confession. 
Can you join me? I want us all to, to sort of join me in the old, I, I came out of a new life background, uh, Jack Miller, to, for, for you to be able to say, whatever sins you see in my life, I have ones that are deeper and bigger than you know. So I'm happy for you to come and point out my sins. It's not like a big deal to me. In fact, I can be thankful for it. And I can know that there's a sufficient atonement, that it doesn't rattle my relationship with the Father. It doesn't spiral me down into, into despair. And I can come to you today and talk about my own sins that are piercing and difficult because Christ has cleansed me from them. And I'm going to work at repenting. I'm going to seek to be different, but I'm going to probably fail. But I belong to Jesus. And the same is true for you. And that's why we confess on a regular basis here at worship. And that's why in the Lord's Prayer it says, Forgive us our sins as we forgive those who sin against us. The self-examination and confession is just a regular part of growing and knowing God. So we're talking about, do you want to know God in, in heart, mind, emotions, will, relationships? Will you enter into this to the depth of your sin and then the fullness of Christ's atonement. Now, some people have a question about this. If it's true that Jesus has taken away my sins and that by, by faith I'm counted righteous once and for all and that this, this atonement was planned before the creation of the world and all these things, why do I need to keep confessing my sins? Isn't the judicial deal finished? And I would say, yes, judicially, if you have true faith and repentance, it is finished. But you have here the Lord telling you to confess your ongoing sins. You have the invitation in the Lord's Prayer to confess your sins. And you cultivate a relationship with the Father in that way. I'm so thankful this week. I felt very close to the Lord because He would be so gracious to convict me of a hidden sin of mine. Are you with me? You want that. You want to know that the Holy Spirit's at work in your life. You want to be, be, be praying Lord, search my heart and know me. Know my heart. So, just, just to say to you, and I, I keep running across this over and over again, has Jesus, are you trusting him, and has he fully atoned for the abortion, the physical adultery, The theft, the lies that got you your job, the things that you have in your closet that you don't want anybody to know about. Does the blood of Jesus really cleanse those? And if, you have, if you've struggled with this, and you go back to it and Satan accuses you, one next step for you, the Bible says, confess your sins one to another and pray for one another that you'd be healed. That you find a trusted person, a person that you can trust for confidentiality. And you say, I believe that Jesus has made atonement for this. So I can bring this into the light to you. And you see the light, the light just drives Satan far away. Just bring it into the light. And I just want to ask you about your ongoing sins. How are you going to fight with your ongoing sins that, that you said, I'm not going to do this again. I'm not going to do this again. I'm not going to talk to her or him that way anymore. I'm not going to indulge in this lust anymore. And you keep falling and falling and falling. Does Christ atone for that?
Yes, he does. And you get up and dust yourself off, and the same thing is true once again. Go to your trusted friend and say, this is my struggle, and you'd be amazed at how quickly you're going to make progress in that area where you seem to be completely stuck. So, brothers and sisters, I want to wrap this up by saying this. You can really look and understand the depth of your sin and the, the sufficiency and completeness of Christ's atonement for you. And what you want to do then is bask in the love of God. Oh, what manner of love the Father has given to us that we should be called children of God. This is what comes later in 1 John chapter 3. Just to see the extravagant love of God, the, the, the Father running to meet prodigals who come back to Him over and over again, and falling on their neck and kissing them, and saying, bring the best robe, put a ring on Him, put a ring on her. Let's, let's celebrate them returning. And you see, that's going to produce humility and joy and peace in your life like you haven't known before. So, was Martin Luther crazy? Well, maybe in some ways, <laughs> but not on this issue he wasn't. He certainly wasn't. And we can know the Lord by growing in a conviction of the depth of our sin and the completeness of Christ's atonement. Let's pray. Father, would you grant us repentance and renewal? Lord, we, just, we praise you and we thank you for this good news. And we want to ask you to work in our lives. Lord, I, I ask for all my brothers and sisters here that this week that you would give uh, to each one what you've given to me this last week is a new revealing of the depth of my own sin in a certain area. And that there will be joy in repentance and hatred of sin and joy in forgiveness. And that we would rejoice and know you, Lord, and that the spillover, the overflow of this would be to our neighbors and friends that we wouldn't be able to not talk about how great and, and wonderful is the love of the Father for us in Christ. So we pray that you would have your way with us. In Jesus' name, amen.